Hey, microbiology people, this is Dr. B, and we are talking about the adaptive immune response, which is chapter 18 of the OpenStax book. Um, you have heard about the innate uh, immunity, the innate immune response, which comprises a number of uh, barriers, both physical and chemical, also cellular responses, including phagocytosis, plus additional mechanisms such as complement activation. And as was mentioned before, we tend to you know, explain it separately, innate and adaptive, but as we will see shortly, there are a number of collaborations between the two systems. So some of those innate mechanisms will show up also in the uh, adaptive response. So they can act by themselves as part of the innate immediate response but they can also collaborate particularly with antibodies in enhancing those same responses. So an introduction to the adaptive response is how is it different from the innate response? And the uh, two basic or very defining features of the adaptive response is specificity and memory. So while the innate mechanisms work towards generic structures, you know, structures that are common to bacteria, structures that are common to viruses and so on, there is no specificity as to the pathogen's identity. So the innate response will be the same, uh, you know, independently it's against a strepto, streptococcus or a staphylococcus or a flu virus, etc. It's going to react to generic features of microbes. In contrast, the adaptive response is highly specific. So there will be a new response developed against each and every, uh, well, I was going to say antigen, but basically against each and every new um, character, microbe, virus, bacterium that appears, but not only that, it's going to be new um, towards any changes in an existing already met pathogen. So the specificity is extremely narrow, it's very targeted, and that's one of the reasons why we said that the adaptive response takes some time to develop because it needs to kind of process the, um, the chemical markers of each specific um, pathogen in order to react. On the other hand, it has memory, which means that once the adaptive response happened for the first time, so once this new microbe has entered the body and provoked the first response that we call the primary response, the any response afterwards is going to be faster and better. And this is because during the first encounter, memory cells will be produced. And those memory cells are long-lived. And um, once or so once they are established the second time around the, um, the pathogen enters, they will be quickly identified by the memory cells and the secondary response will be you know, higher, more specific, and also faster to occur. 
So again, specificity and memory are the, uh, the landmarks of the adaptive immune response. Also, in the adaptive response, we talk about two types or two arms, the humoral and the cell-mediated immunity. And the humoral one refers to, uh, so humor in the sense of um, body fluids. So this is the response that comprises the antibody response. And of the cells involved in this response are B lymphocytes or B cells. And the B cells themselves are not going to produce the antibodies. They will bind to the um, antigens, so the molecules that provoke the response, and then they will develop into a type of cell called plasma cells. And plasma cells are little factories of antibody production. So plasma cells are not supposed to remain forever in the bloodstream. They are produced in response to an infection and uh, they produce antibodies and then they go away. Um, then cell-mediated immunity involves T cells and T cells, T lymphocytes have what we call T cell receptors on their surface and then they can um, react in different ways. And I do want to highlight that although we talk about humoral immunity, antibody response, and B cells, nothing really works completely well and efficiently without the, the role of T helper cells. So T helper cells are going to act on all other immune cells and activate them, stimulate them, and so on. And that includes also the B cells to produce antibodies. So we are going to start with antibodies because it's, it's kind of, they are very central to the whole adaptive response. But towards the end of this chat, we are going to see that without the cellular response and particularly the role of T helper cells, the immune response overall is not going to be as effective. So antibodies, um, in general, antibodies are proteins. We are going to see their structure in a minute, but they can be present in, um, in serum, but also in body fluids and can be produced by cells and be present on the surface of the cells. And other words for antibodies include immunoglobulin and uh, gamma globulin. And why is that? Because the type of protein is globulin, and immunoglobulins means they are they have an immune function. So very often you will see the abbreviation Ig for antibody types, which stands for immunoglobulin, but also you will see it as Ab for antibodies. And antibodies can also be used as medication. So whenever you see a drug name that ends in Ab or mostly Mab. Uh, something MAB uh, that indicates that that medication is actually an antibody. So we have mentioned the word antigen before. Antigen refers to something that provokes a, an adaptive response. And mostly we think about molecules, very often proteins, that are present on the surface of cells, but it can be also, you know, any kind of uh, part of a large molecule such as a protein 
So they tend to be small parts of a, a cell or a protein. So when we think about antigens, and we may refer to you know the antigens of a bacterium, we are looking at small portions of the of a protein that can be present in some parts of the bacterium. So this small size of the antigen which can be even smaller, and this is what we call epitopes. So epitopes are just even smaller regions of the antigen. So by it being, by them being so small, that kind of guarantees that the um, specificity of the antibody response will be very tailored, very narrow. So for that reason, if you think about, you know, viruses, for example, like the flu virus, they can mutate or they, they mutate, in fact, from one ear to another and just a tiny variation in a small part of the viral envelope, you know, protein on the viral envelope can change the viral structure or the viral antigen, which means that the antibodies that worked last year are not going to work next year. So again, antigen is usually a protein. It's a part of a molecule that is part of a cell. If this is a cell or antigen that provokes an adaptive response. As for antibody structure, I recommend that you look at the diagrams that are available in the lecture slides or in the books. So the generic structure of the antibody is kind of looks like a Y, like a letter Y. You have two heavy and two light chains. So the heavy are longer than the light chains and they are bound together with disulfide bonds. So these are sulfur atoms binding to each other. And when you look at the, um, the base of the Y, we call that the FC or constant region. And the name why it's called constant is because this region doesn't change a lot and it has a number of important functions, but these are unrelated to the actual recognition of the antigen. The, the little arms of the Y are what we call the variable region. It's also called the FAB region. AB in this case uh, means antigen binding site. So the FAB region, the variable region is the one that binds to the antigen and um, you know the genetics of antibodies is very complicated but there are many ways how the <clears throat> production of antibodies is going to be tailored to specific antigens and can um, you know improve over time. In humans there are five antibody classes IgG, IgM, IgA, IgD and IgE. And I recommend that you look at the tables, slides that kind of summarize them, but I'm just going to give you some of the highlights of each. So IgG is the most common antibody in humans. It's 80% of the serum antibodies. It's a very versatile antibody, and we are going to see different functions later on. And it has the unique ability to cross the placenta. So there, this is the way how a newborn, while 
newborn are only born with their own innate immunity, but because they have received IgG from the mothers, they can, you know, protect themselves during the first, I would say, six months of their life, or maybe less. Um, so IgG is the most common. The second most common is IgM. And something special about IgM is that it's a large molecule. It's five of those <clears throat> Y-shaped units together. It constitutes between 5 and 10% of the serum antibodies. It has a limited and more limited range of activities, but it's very good in what we call agglutination which basically means clumping of microbes together. It's a way to keep them together and kind of uh, prevent them from spreading further. And also when antibodies are made, IgM is the first antibody that is made, and then later there's a switch towards IgG. IgA is a dimer, so you have two of those Y um, structure, antibody structure bind kind of tail to tail. And what is special about it, that it is present in secretions, think like tears and saliva. So it has an important role in protection of the mucosa. IgD and IgE are kind of minor, it's, they are a minority, they are a very, in a very small amount in the serum. And IgD can be present on the surface of B cells and it's going to play a role in initiating the antibody response through uh, of the B cells and in this case the antibody is going to act like a B cell receptor. And IgE also it's a small percentage of serum antibodies. It can be present on bound to cells in on mast cells and basophils. And it has a good thing and a bad thing about it. So the bad thing is that IgE is often a participant in allergic reactions. On the other hand, it is very useful for lysis of parasitic worms. So again, IgG, IgM, IgA, IgD, and IgE, be sure to review their functions and where they are present. Now, what can antibodies do? Antibodies are extremely versatile, and they can um, inhibit or damage all kinds of pathogens or even molecules of pathogens. So we are going to see a few examples of what antibodies can do, and then we are going to connect it with some of these innate mechanisms that are enhanced by the presence of antibodies. So first, we already mentioned agglutination. And IgM is really good at this. Um, if you think about IgM, again, it's a pentamer, so you have five of those Y-shaped uh, units connected or together. It's like having these multiple arms. So multiple arms can grab multiple microbes at the same time and form this aggregate. So agglutination is the fancy word for clumping. So again, just keeping them together and preventing them to spread further, it's a uh, defensive mechanisms, mechanism of antibodies. Now, in the innate response, we talked about um, 
phagocytosis, you know, a phagocytic cell such as a macrophage or a dendritic cell or a neutrophil can engulf a bacterium, for example. Now, if the bacterium has antibodies bound to it, that's going to make it even easier for the phagocyte to find and engulf the microbe. And the reason is that phagocytes have receptors to the FC, the constant region of antibodies. So it's almost like they don't need to see the, the microbe or the bacterium by, by seeing the FC region of the antibody, the constant region, they can bind to it and then just they move on and engulf whatever is beyond that FC region. So this process of enhanced uh, phagocytosis, it's what we call opsonization. And we talked about complement activation before, you know, this cascade-like activation of multiple components in the plasma that eventually would lead to the formation of the membrane, membrane attack complex, the MAC, basically bursting the cell. Um, Complement can be activated directly by the microbe. That's what we call the alternative pathway or the lectin pathway. But the classical pathway starts with antibodies bound to the microbe. So kind of similar of how the phagocyte can find the bacterium or the microbe easier if it has antibodies bound to it. We have this additional enhancement of complement that can be activated easily by the presence of antibodies on the microbe. So this is another type of collaboration between innate and adaptive mechanisms. Similar can happen in um, with cyto cytotoxic um, processes. So you may recall that we talked about large parasites. So large parasites cannot be phagocytose, if you think, for example, a large worm. And in that case, we mentioned uh, eosinophils, for example, that could act directly, killing or damaging the, the large parasite. Well, same way, if the parasite has antibodies already bound to it, this cytotoxicity, this direct killing, can be more effective. So this process in which we have a large parasite, antibodies bound to it, and then a killer kind of cell, such as an eosinophil or even an NK cell, can see those antibodies, bind to the antibodies, and then release cytotoxins, which will then provoke the death of the microbe. And this is what we call ADCC, which means antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. I know it's a mouthful. Antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. Now, think about toxins. So we have been talking about toxins and particularly and exotoxins, which are uh, mostly proteins released from gram-positive cells. A lot of those toxins are very lethal. They can bind to cells and kill them. So antibodies can bind to the toxin and prevent that they bind to the cell causing death. So this process is called neutralization. 
So again, the antibody binds to the toxin, prevents the toxin binding to the cell and therefore prevents the toxin killing the cell. Other uh, microbes that can be uh, neutralized are viruses. So um, a virus, if it's blocked, if it's surrounded by antibodies and blocked by them, means that it cannot then bind to the cell to infect them. So virus is toxin, but even some bacteria can be neutralized by the antibodies binding to regions, either of the molecule or the virus or the bacterium that are important for their functioning. Now we have seen the, uh, let's say the effectors of the adaptive or one of the effectors of the adaptive response, which would be antibodies that are part of the humoral response. But how? does it start? And especially how does it start the very, very first time? And the very first time, the primary um, response of the adaptive response happened when the, the pathogen enters the body for the first time. And for that to happen, there has to be a process called antigen presentation. And you can imagine it in a way that, okay, the microbe enters and the immune system reacts to it, particularly the innate system is going to see that, okay, this looks like a bacterium, this looks like a virus, let's attack it. But for that very specific, uh, highly effective response, that it's the adaptive response, you need to present the uh, antigens of the microbe in a special way. Uh, and I called it like on a silver platter. And the silver platter in this context would be a group of molecules that exist on the surface of certain cells called MHC class one and class two antigens. So what is MHC? It means major histocompatibility complex. So if you look at the word, listen to the word histo, which is tissue and compatibility, this, uh, this name, the MHC, major histocompatibility complex, comes from tissue transplantation wording, because when you are you know, looking for a um, matching, a donor and an acceptor of an organ or a tissue, you have to match them to see how similar they are, because otherwise it will be rejected. So MHC molecules are basically like your fingerprint on the cellular surface that shows your selfness, you know, who you are, who the cell is, who the individual is from a cellular point of view. So these molecules are going to be very unique for each person. And that's why we were saying that the adaptive response or the immune response in general is very centered in detecting everything that is non-self. Okay, so again, MHC antigens kind of define the molecular identity of an individual. And there are two kinds, class one and class two. Class one are present in all cells and class two are present in 
mostly immune cells, particularly macrophages, dendritic cells, and B cells. So these MHC antigens are going to be the silver platter on which the microbial antigens are presented to effector cells. And in this case, the effector cells would be um, either helper T cells or cytotoxic T cells. So how does it work? It may be easier if you know watch some of the videos that show the process, but let me describe it with you for you with words. So we are going to start with the presentation through the MHC class 2 for T helper cells. So these are T lymphocyte and specific subset that is called the CD4, sometimes called T4 uh, cells, which are called the helper T cells. So picture a, an antigen presenting cell, APC. So an antigen presenting cell could be a dendritic cell or a macrophage. Could be also B cells, but we are going to focus now on dendritic cells or macrophages. They are phagocytic. They are going to, you know, phagocytose, let's say, a bacterium, and the bacterium is digested inside that phagolysosome. You may recall we talked about how uh, the phagocytosis puts the microbe in a vesicle called the phago phagosome, and then it. Um, melts or, you know, fuses with the lysosome. So the microbe, the bacterium is digested. We have antigenic fragments left. And those fragments then combine with the MHC class 2. And MHC class 2 together with the uh, uh, microbial antigen goes out to the cell surface. So again, imagine this little silver platter um, with the microbial antigen on the surface, and it binds to a T cell, a T helper cell. When a T cell, or a cell in general, any of these immune cells has not bound, has not met a pathogen before, we call them naive. So the naive T helper cell is going to meet with the, um, with the MHC class 2 bearing APC, and then there will be this connection between the T cell receptor of the helper T cell and the MHC class 2 together with the antigen. And after that interaction, you will see a, an activation of the helper T cell, and there will be a release of a large number of cytokines, mediators, that will act on other immune cells. Okay, so again, the antigen-presenting cells has phagocytose digested the, uh, the microbe, for example, a bacterium or a virus, the antigen binds to MHC class 2. It's presented on the surface, comes the T helper cell, the T cell receptor, and the MHC class 2 with the antigen bind, and then things happen. The uh, type of cytokines and the type of cells that are um, activated or released 
cytokines release cells activated is going to depend largely on what kind of microbe um, you know has been detected there are subset of t helper cells and they will act on different immune cells so they can activate macrophages mast cells b cells um, all kinds of effectors and they can also directly activate inflammatory mediators so the t helper cell itself doesn't do anything to the microbe but because of that interaction with the antigen presenting cell it's going to be the central coordinator of the immune response and just be aware that nothing really works well in the immune response if the t helper cell is not present so that was the antigenic presentation through the mhc class 2 antigen to helper t cells MHC class 1, again, is present in all the cells. So this kind of presentation through MHC class 1 happens usually towards the cytotoxic T cells. So cytotoxic T cells, also called CD8 cells, are actual effectors in the sense that they will kill the, uh, the cell. So... MHC class 1 mediated presentation is often happens with virally infected cell. So if you have a cell that has been infected with viruses, the viral antigens are inside the cell. So the same process that happened with MHC class 2 can happen with MHC class 1, taking a piece of the antigen fragment on the, to the surface of the cell and then instead of a helper T cell, we will have a cytotoxic T cell recognizing that, um, that union of MHC class 1 and antigen, and then there will be a direct action. So the cytotoxic T cell will release um, cytotoxins that will then directly kill the cell. Okay, so we talked about the activation of T cells, helper T cells, cytotoxic C cells as part of the uh, cellular response. Now, if you think back to what we were saying about antibodies before, we said, okay, B cells will become plasma cells and then produce antibodies. But that step between B cell and plasma cell requires also helper T cell activity. So we said that there are antibodies that can be on the surface of the B cell, and we specifically mentioned IgD, it's also IgM. So those, those antibodies can function as receptors of antigens. They are actually called BCR, B cell receptors. They can bind to the antigen through their antigen binding site. But that binding is not really going to do a lot. There will be a little bit of activation, but what really, really makes the B cells, um, you know, become plasma cells and produce large quantities of antibodies is T helper 
cell help. So after this antigen binding to the antibody on the surface of the B cell, they will receive support from the T helper cells that will be inflammatory, or not sorry, inflammatory, there will be cytokines, chemical messengers uh, released, and then that is going to activate the B cell. The B cell is going to divide, so there will be a lot of B cells, and eventually they then become specialized plasma cells, which will churn out a large number of antibodies. Okay, so again, now we are kind of connecting all the dots together. The story starts with a microbe entering, depending on the kind of microbe, you know, it can be a virus, it can be a bacterium. Um, the innate system will do stuff to that microbe, but in order for the adaptive response to start, the antigens from that microbe have to be presented <clears throat> to T cells, can, act, can work via antigen presenting cell and MHC class 2 to T helper cells, or can be done MHC class 1 directly to the cytotoxic T cell. However, that T helper cell activation is critical for everything else. As for the antibody response, the B cell will bind to the antigen, but it requires T helper cell um, help uh, by, you know, different chemicals, different cytokines to actually become activated and produce, become plasma cell and produce antibodies. So the T helper cell is really at the center of a robust adaptive response, both cellularly and uh, in the humoral antibody part. So that explains why HIV, HIV positive patient will have, if not treated, a more and more uh, pronounced immune deficiency because HIV specifically attacks CD4 helper T cells. And that results in AIDS if it's not treated and in AIDS there is this deep immune suppression because the CD4 cells, helper T cells, have been wiped out. And that's what causes AIDS patients to die, not the actual viral infection, but the uh, number of opportunistic infections that happen because the person is immune compromised. So just revisit the, uh, again, the primary and secondary response, you know, especially in diagrams. Um, during the primary response, memory cells are produced, both memory B and memory T cells. So in the second time around, there is no need to do the antigen presentation again, because the memory cells remember. So if the antigen comes around again, the memory cells will become activated and then they just activate the other cells and then we will have B cells becoming plasma cells, producing antibodies, and then we have the you know, T helper and T cytotoxic cells doing their, um, you know, their usual activities, T helper cells helping and um, T cytotoxic cells killing target cells. But because there is no need to do the whole antigenic presentation process, this is going to happen much faster and also at a higher volume. Now, um, let's talk now briefly about the types 
of adaptive immunity. And we can classify them based on two questions. Is it natural or artificial? Is it active or passive? So active and passive here refers to who did the job of you know, producing the immune response. Examples. Naturally acquired active is when a person you know, becomes infected and then that results in immunity. It's natural and it's active because your own immune system is doing the job. Natural passive has only one example. So this would be the um, uh, when the mom gives antibodies to the baby, either through the placenta or via the colostrum, which is the very first uh, breast milk that is produced. It's very rich in, in antibodies. So it's natural because it's mother to baby, but it's passive because the baby is using mom's antibodies. So the antibodies were made by a different person. Artificial active would be the act of vaccination. So, you know, the immune system mounts a response, but this was done artificially. And artificial passive refers to the case when a person receives an injection of antibodies that were made in other person. And there are different reasons for that. Sometimes it's just a timing issue. You know, the, um, the microbe produces deadly toxins or the infection is very dangerous and there is no time to wait for the active response. So in that case, pre-made antibodies are given. Examples that as, you know, anti-venoms, anti-toxins, but also useful rabies. Another example of passive could be what it's called the um, post-exposure prophylaxis, VP, which is used very often in healthcare workers if they are exposed to the HIV virus. So in that case, the patient will receive antibodies against the virus as a preventive measure. And sometimes both can be combined. So sometimes you will see, for example, if somebody is bitten by an animal that is suspected of rabies, they will receive both a vaccine against the rabies virus for them to develop antibodies. But due to the dangerous nature of the virus and timing, you know, do we have enough time to develop the active response, then they at the same time are going to receive an anti-rabies anti-serum. So um, very briefly about the types of vaccines. So vaccines are again artificial and active. So the idea is to give something to the patient that they can mount an immune response and acquire immunity. Now you don't want it to be the real uh, infection, especially if the infection is very dangerous. So um, one way to do that, and that's what the first way that um, vaccines were made, is what we call the live attenuated vaccine. So a microbe was taken, a bacterium or a virus, and it was weakened, artificially weakened, so the, uh, the pathogen would still be alive or you know, able to infect, but would not cause disease. And because this is so close to real life, the, uh, these vaccines provide a very strong immunity and they last a long time and usually requires only one dose. 
But um, besides just complexity in handling this kind of vaccine, there is always the, uh, the concern that certain individuals, maybe they have some depressed immune system and are unable to, they may get sick even with that attenuated uh, microbe or the fact that these microbes are alive mean that they could mutate back and become strong again. So there are many examples of such vaccines, but again, they, they are complicated and have their own risks. So the next step or the next um, type is when you still have the whole microbe, but then it's inactivated. So, you know, it can be killed or inactivated. This is much easier to handle. You don't have the risk of becoming, you know, infectious again, but the immunity is going to be weaker. And very often you would need multiple doses. Now, sometimes you don't even want to deal with the whole microbe, even if it's dead or inactivated. So by looking or by taking just the antigens, you know, certain protein or certain components of the microbe as a vaccine, you have kind of similar, um, so it's simpler and less risky, but also, um, you know, it may require multiple doses in order to, um, to be effective. And kind of a variation of the subunit vaccine would be what we call a toxoid. So you may recall that toxin is the active toxin and toxoid is an inactivated toxin. And we are particularly thinking of bacterial exotoxins. So um, they are very good in the sense that they are almost like the real thing, like the real deal uh, toxin, except is not going to be, you know, dangerous and they will provide a um, immunity to neutralize a toxin. Just note that it doesn't prevent infection. It just prevents that the toxin, if enters the body, uh, from causing damage. And there are also so-called conjugate um, vaccines in which combinations of uh, a protein and a capsule polysaccharide is made. Um, and it's not on the list because this comes from the textbook, but clearly with um, COVID, we have experienced the mRNA vaccines. There are other vaccines. So some vaccines are mRNA vaccines and the other vaccines are actual kind of more typical subunit vaccines. But mRNA vaccines, basically they take certain, the mRNA for certain subunits of the, uh, of the virus, and then that mRNA is transcribed in the cells of the host, and then it will, you know, mount an immune response, just like, you know, if you injected the subunit. One of the advantages of mRNA is much easier to manipulate nucleic acids compared to proteins. So for that reason, once you have kind of the template and it's much easier to, to edit. So I hope that give a uh, background in the adaptive response and thank you very much.